Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. I invite you to, uh, first of all, isn't it great just to, to worship this way? We're down on the floor, we're together, it's, it, we're, we're surrounded by one another. I, I just love it. I'm so glad that um, those who, who oversee our worship uh, each Sunday and do such a great job planning the service, uh, Matt and Jeff and others, uh, just saw fit to, to gather us this way during the Advent season. I think it, it draws us together um, draws us together physically that God might draw us together through His Spirit as we consider the wonderful mystery of, of Christ come and returning again. I invite you to turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, that is on page 2. If you happen to be using one of those red Bibles that are available, I think they're right behind the seats, or actually back there if you need a Bible. Uh, red Bibles look like this, they're red. Um, page 2 is Genesis 3.15. We're look in particular at Genesis uh, 3.15 this morning, but we'll be in, in several other passages of Scripture as we uh, get into the Advent season. Remember Jesus, His coming. Advent means Jesus' arrival, His coming. And, and we remember His first coming, Christmas time. It's what we're celebrating this season of the year. But we're also looking forward to His second coming. We've already sung of that uh, this morning. But it is Christmas time. And I wonder, how do, you, how do you know that Christmas is coming? What are some of the, the hints that typically tell you uh, that Christmas, that Advent is upon us? I have a very distinct memory. One of my earliest memories, I, I realized, I don't, the older you get, the less, you know, the farther, you can't quite go back as far as you used to be able to go. But this had to be before I was school age. And it was in early December, and I woke up, I looked out the window, and I saw snow on the ground at our home there in Michigan, and I started to run around the house saying, it's Christmas, it's Christmas, it's Christmas. Because in my short memory, I hadn't celebrated too many Christmases, and apparently they had all been white Christmases up to that point, snow equaled Christmas. And so I was sure it was Christmas, and of course, as a kid, I knew what Christmas meant, <laughs> presents and such and all that, so I was really excited it was Christmas, and my mom, bless her heart, said, yes, you know, Christmas is coming, but we're not quite there. That, to me, was a hint that Christmas was on its way. And I'll bet whatever hints that Christmas is on its way are, are, are good memories, warm things in your life, whether it's the, the lights going up on Main Street or putting your tree up uh, in your house or, or listening to Christmas songs on the radio or on whatever device uh, you use for listening. These are warm memories. These are, these are good things that we, we understand Christmas is on its way. Advent season is here. Well, this morning we're going to look at the first hint of Christmas in the Bible. And in the biblical storyline, the story of redemption, the first hint of Christmas does not come in a happy way. It does not come at a particularly joyous time. In fact, the first hint of Christmas comes in what we could call the most tragic of chapters in the whole Bible, Genesis chapter 3. Because Genesis chapter 3 is, is the story of sin entering in, and with sin, death, and destruction, and the fallenness, uh, not only of humankind, but, but the fallenness of all of creation in Genesis chapter 3. But in it, we see the, the first hint of Christmas. It's not a happy chapter in that sense. And the word we're going to begin with this morning as we look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, is a word that, that doesn't 
a word we want to think about necessarily at Christmas. If, if this happens in our Christmas celebrations, we know that it's not going to be a very good Christmas. It's, it's a word, uh, four words in, in my text in Genesis 15, the word enmity. Enmity. You see probably the word enemy in the word enmity. It has to do with, with conflict, hostility. And the first hint of Christmas and, and the coming of a Savior in the Bible is this word conflict hostility, enmity. So we need to trace that through the text this morning. We're going to be, I said, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, looking at the three lines that make up uh, that chapter, but bringing other texts to bear on it. And as, as we look at those three lines, we're going to move from the origins of the conflict to the nature of the conflict, and then finally to the outcome of the conflict. Let's Let's look at the origin and the nature and the outcome of the conflict. There's a conflict here. How did we get into this mess? What is, is the origin of the hostility that we're focusing here when it says in Genesis 3, 15, I will put enmity, hostility, conflict between you and the woman. Well, in order to understand how we got into the mess, we need to understand what life was like before the mess. That's Genesis chapters 1 and chapters 2. And what, don't you wish our Bibles could just end at the end of Genesis chapter 2? Not only would they be a lot lighter, I mean, you could put it on a pamphlet and carry it in your back pocket, but, but all of the mess that happens in Genesis chapter 3, all the pain and all the suffering, I love looking at Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the origins of the entire universe and the goodness of our God who, who created, we, we heard that this morning in the Advent reading, created everything out of nothing, just spoke the word and, and everything, all the beauty and grandeur and wonder and mystery of the created world and every day at the end of the day, he says, it was good, it was good, it was good. And then on the sixth day, God creates something and he said, it was very good, us humanity in his image bearing his likeness and God says humanity is 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 above all of creation you are in my likeness and we see that 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 mankind is different from everything else that God created by the way that he interacts with humanity he speaks to people there's communication there's a covenant relationship that he has with the first human beings, the man and the woman, a person-to-person -person relationship that is characterized by blessing and, and grace and joy and community and human flourishing as God cares for them and protects them and gives them purpose. Look at Genesis 1.28. You probably don't even have to turn the page. Maybe you do. Genesis 1.28, God gives people purpose, humanity purpose. He's, he's, it says, God blessed them, mankind, and he, God said to them. That's just an amazing thing right there, that God is speaking to his creation. And he's given them the, under, the, the ability to understand and comprehend what he's communicating. God spoke to them and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea that I've created and the birds of the air that I've created of the heavens and, and everything that moves on the earth. So God gives humanity purpose. Take this creation, this beautiful world that I've made, and I give it to you to, to, to rule over it responsibly, to be a steward of it, uh, to create culture, art, and, and literature, and science, uh, to build things, to do things, to, to, to play sports, and all kinds of good things and build buildings. 
and create culture. And so God gives humanity purpose. He also gives them responsibility, moral responsibility. There are two trees mentioned in chapter 2, verse 9. Tree of life. Philip read about that. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then God says about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in, in chapter 2, uh, verse 17. Again, speaking to the people, giving them moral responsibility, allowing them to live trusting God and his word. He says in verse 17, first he says, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, just, just the largeness, the overflow of God's goodness and provision and generosity uh, to, his, to the, his created beings, in particular people. He said, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And so God gives human beings responsibility to, to, to obey him. And if we could just end the Bible at the end of chapter 2, all would be right and all would be good. And all, all of humanity and all of creation would, flour, would flourish. But we come to chapter 3, without a doubt the most tragic chapter in the Bible. And it's, it's a tragic chapter because, first of all, an intruder has invaded God's good creation. There's an insurgent in his creation whose tactics are both subtle and deceptive. The serpent speaks to the woman, and no doubt in the presence of the man who heard everything that he said. And he's, he begins to, to work out his tactics with, of subtle deception by twisting God's word. Did God really say is that what he really meant when he said that? And questioning God's goodness. Oh, no, no, no. No, God knows. God's holding you back by giving you all these rules. There's really only about one rule. And inviting their self-indulgence. Ultimately, that was the invitation, that was the temptation to the man and the woman to be your own authority, to be your own God, to run life the way that you want it, to usurp, to take God off his throne and put yourself on, your, on the throne, ruling your life. The result is that the man and the woman ate. They certainly sinned before they ate, but they ate because they gave in to the temptation to, to be their own authority, to be their own God. And so death, we read, enters into creation. And now all of creation is broken. All of creation is falling. Nothing anymore in the created world is the way it was supposed to be. It doesn't flourish the way it was intended to. And human beings find that death has entered. Death will eventually be the end of everyone physically, but they've already died spiritually. There is a spiritual death that happens. And then in verse 22, as Philip read, they were banished from the garden. The Lord God said, chapter 3, verse 22, Behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Not just mentally knowing it, but, but now human beings have their hands dirtied by evil. They've experienced evil. They're on, the, they're on the other side. They're on the inside of evil. And now lest one of them reach out their hand and take also from the tree of life, which would give them eternal life and eat and live forever. Therefore, God sent them out of the Garden of Eden, driven from the place that God had created. They had lived as God's people in God's place, living under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing. And now they're banished from that place, sent out of Eden. 
And so as image bearers are banished from the very place of blessing. Genesis chapter 3 is all about God, God's curse. God's curse over creation. Genesis 3.15 is the curse to the serpent, to the snake. And uh, curse it should be thought of as, as, as the banishment or the, the separation from God's blessing. And that is certainly what happened in Genesis uh, chapter 3. But I think it's important for us to remember that Genesis th- chapter 3, the fall of humanity, looking back to our first parents, our, our representatives, we notice that as we read Scripture, uh, Adam is the one who is responsible for, for sin entering into the human race and for our own uh, sinfulness that we're born in sin. The Puritans used to teach their kids the alphabet. Letter A was for Adam. And they remember it by saying, in Adam's fall... We sinned all. And that certainly is true. That's good theology there. Through Adam, our representative, our federal head, all of humanity plunged into sin. And it might be easy to look back and say, doggone it, Adam. (laughs) He kind of screwed it up for the rest of us. But a couple things we have to remember. One is, would we, any of us, done any better than our foreparents did in that situation? And number two, the story of Genesis chapter 3 isn't just what happened back then. It's also what happens all the time in our own hearts and in our own lives. We take God's Word and we, we twist it, we distort it, and we, we shave it to fit our purposes. We, we doubt God's goodness for us. We invite our own self-indulgence, our own self-worship. We want to be, we want to rule our own roost. So we find that we are just as guilty as our foreparents. So how did we get into this mess? What is the origin of this mess? It's, it's rebellion of the human heart. It's rebellion of humanity against our Creator. We got into this mess by rebelling against our Creator, and the result is guilt. So that's, that's the origin of the conflict. Well, what is the nature of this conflict? What is the nature of the conflict that we read about here? I will put enmity, I will put conflict between you, this is the serpent who, who led the man and the woman into temptation and sin, between you and the woman. God is speaking a curse on the serpent here. I'll put enmity between you and the woman. And then it says between your offspring, your descendants, your seed, the woman's seed, or I'm sorry, the serpent's seed, God is saying, and between the seed or the offspring or the descendants of the woman. And so we observe here that that the nature of this conflict is, is undeniably personal. And not only are, are the woman in the garden affected, and the enemy, the serpent, but the descendants, the more, more of humanity is affected. Their offspring are affected. All of humanity is affected. The, the conflict, the nature of it is unavoidably personal. Now, some have looked at this second line. I will put enmity between your, the serpent's offspring and, or seed or descendants and the woman's offspring is saying, okay, the woman's offspring, we got that figured out. Those would be human beings. But, but the, the, the serpent's offspring is, are, those, are those 
little devils? Are those demons? What are we talking about there? That's, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about essentially two groups of humanity. And we see this as we trace through the storyline of the Bible. Every person, who are you aligning yourself with? Are you the seed of the woman, essentially God's people, or are you the seed of the serpent? Are you the seed of the enemy? Who will you align? So, so we have this, the struggle of history and humanity is set, God's people and the world. And so again, we observe that the forces of evil in the universe are not impersonal. The forces of evil have faces, our faces. Each person's quest to be their own authority inevitably leads in clashing with somebody else's desire to be their own authority. And so we both sin against others and we're sinned against. We both sin and we suffer for our sin. And then we respond in sinful ways toward others. And that's what that's the nature of the conflict. That's what, our, that's what life is for humanity now. There's, there's great joy and wonder in life, and yet there is great misery and there is great suffering. We sin and we suffer. There's misery. There's conflict. And we don't normally think of misery and conflict as certainly not as good things. But I want to suggest this morning that there is a positive aspect of this, in this sense. That to live an anti-God life, uh, to live a life the way that, that we are tempted to live for ourselves, and to not suffer, and to not be in misery, would be a lie. That it would not be right with the universe. God has, God has ordained things so that when we don't trust Him, when we don't live according to His purposes, according to His revealed will, we suffer and we're miserable. And that's a good thing for this reason. It tells us that we're out of alignment with our Creator. The misery that we feel, the suffering in this world, is designed to point us back to God. It's designed to help us long for Eden. And I want to suggest also that this is a way that we can build a bridge to our friends and our neighbors and our loved ones who don't know Christ. Have you ever met anybody in this world who thinks that the world is all that it should be and who doesn't think that the world could be a better place? Have you met anybody who isn't, who isn't concerned about something in our world that isn't what it's supposed to be? Some kind of injustice, some kind of wrong that's happening that you can hear about on the news? Well, guess what? Christians have the story of how all those wrongs get righted at the end. And they have the story of the hero who has come to make all things right. And so we have a wonderful place to build a bridge to begin to point people toward the hero, toward the hero of God's story, the one who we want to talk about right now as we move to the outcome of the conflict. Because if we stop here, 
with the first two lines of Genesis 3.15, where there's enmity, there's conflict between the serpent and the woman, and where there's conflict between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman, if we stopped there, life would be really bleak, or perhaps neutral, kind of like Star Wars. Good force, dark force. You win some, you lose some. It's like following your favorite sports team. Sometimes you win, sometimes the forces of evil win. <laughs> Ups and downs, what's it going to be? It's all cyclical. How are we going to do this year? How are we going to do this decade? But line three is a game changer. It is incredibly forward-looking. It is filled with promise, and it's all because of the very first word in the third line. Enmity between the serpent, enmity between the woman. Enmity between the serpent's offspring, enmity between the woman's offspring, and then the word he. He. One individual. You see, even in English, the term offspring, or a lot of translations have the term seed there, it can mean many. Offspring can mean many individuals, or it could mean one singular particular individual, one particular seed, one particular offspring, one particular descendant. The first hint of Christmas, friends, the first hint of the gospel is that little word, he. He shall bruise your head, serpent, enemy, infiltrator, you shall merely bruise his heel. You see, the outcome of this conflict is entirely dependent upon the one individual promised seed. One particular, an offspring of the woman, one human being, the new, the perfect Adam, who would put himself on the line for, for all the sons of Adam and, and all the daughters of Eve, willingly place himself in the middle of the conflict, putting his body on the line to be bruised, knowing that though he would be bruised, it would be in a battle with the serpent. And so for the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, who first heard this, there was a glimmer of hope. There was a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. And we see that in chapter 4 of Genesis, that Eve was hopeful. She had two sons, two potential seeds. And one looked pretty promising. But the other, who proved to be the offspring of the serpent, killed one who looked like he might be the seed. And so we have the storyline for the rest of the Old Testament is set. Constantly looking, who is the seed? There are prophets, there are priests, there are kings, and they all look very promising. Could this be the one? There's so much potential here. Think of Saul, all the potential that was in King Saul, the first king of Israel, and then hopes dashed. Over and over again, is this the one, the seed? Maybe he is. Hopes dashed shattered. That's the storyline of the entire Old Testament. And then we get to Matthew. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. 
We come to the Gospel of Matthew, and we come to chapter 1, which is a chapter, at least the first part of it, that most of us would run some Bible reading plan. At best, we're going to skim over it, (laughs) and probably most of us skim really high over it. Because the first part of Genesis, excuse me, the first part of Matthew chapter 1 is one of those lousy <laughs> genealogies. You know, begats. Remember those, the, the, the versions of the Bible? Uh, that the begats. This person begat, that person, that person begat, begat, begat. And it, it all seems so uh, mundane and pedantic. Begat, 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 begat. And yet, the begats, these, this genealogy, the genealogies in the Bible, particularly in the Gospels, are incredibly important to the storyline. And they're incredibly important in understanding the outcome of the conflict and the hero that God is sending. Because we've been looking for a seed throughout the storyline of the Bible. Begatting is all about seed, about about people being reproduced. And so this person begats that person. Are they the seed? This person fathers that person. Are they the seed? No, no, no. And then verse 18, we get to the birth of Jesus. And now the birth of Jesus. Only this child is begat in a completely different way. The Holy Spirit The same Holy Spirit that was hovering over the chaos in creation, over the void, now hovers over a virgin named Mary. And in the darkness of her womb, creates a human being. And they are told, she is told, and Joseph is told, that they should name this child Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Look at at how... This event is uh, described to John, or how John describes it. Turn to Revelation chapter 12. This is the Apostle John's psychedelic vision, not aided by chemicals, his psychedelic vision of what we just read, of the birth of Jesus to the Virgin Mary. Revelation chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. It's the vision he saw. It's a vision of, of a historical event in God's redemptive plan. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. There's a hint, 12. This has something to do uh, likely with the nation of Israel. She was pregnant and she was crying out in birth pains, in agony, giving birth, and there was another sign that appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon. There he is. There's the serpent. We don't know this in Genesis chapter 3, but between Genesis chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 12, we understand that the serpent is the great Satan. He is the enemy. He is Satan. And this is what he tried to do when God's hero the Christ of Christmas was going to be born. He's a, he's a dragon. He's got great power and authority, seven heads and seven horns, and on his head, seven diadems. And with his tail, he swept a third of the stars from heaven. Speaking of how uh, 
how Lucifer, Satan, was an exalted angel. And when he wanted to usurp authority from God, he brought with him a third of the angels. Now they, are his, they do his bidding. With his tail, he swept a third of the stars from heaven, cast them down to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore the child, he might devour it. And she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to the throne. And the enemy was not successful. The great dragon, the great serpent, was not successful in extinguishing the Savior at his birth. And so they were told to call his name Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, God, Yahweh, saves. His name tells us what he's going to do. He's going to be a hero. He's going to rescue a people for God. He is going to be the Savior. He is going to be the Deliverer. And he is called Emmanuel, God with us. He's God with us, just like in the beginning, in the garden, God with us. And so he's God. He's the Son of God, completely God. And yet he is the seed of the woman, completely human. He is the son of man with a real human body that will be bruised in battle with the serpent for us. Listen to how Isaiah predicted that, prophesied about that in Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. All of us have turned to our own way, everyone. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He will crush your head. He will bruise your head. Yes, you will bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15, God is speaking to Satan. He's speaking to the serpent. He said, my hero is going to come. My seed will come. And one day, yes, you will bruise him. You'll bruise the bottom of his heel. But only as he is crushing your head in complete victory. Jesus is the hero of God's story, friend. He is the hero we all need. He is the hero who is tailor-made for us. We need someone to rescue us. And Jesus is that one. God sent him, the eternal second person of the Trinity, co-equal with God through eternity, but God that we celebrate this at Christmas, gave him a body. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Put on flesh. Incarnate, incarnate. Uniquely equipped that he might make right and that he might restore all things that have gone wrong in the universe. And uniquely able to blaze a blood-stained trail to that tree of life that we heard about, both in Genesis and in Revelation. 
Isn't it interesting that how many things that we read about in Genesis, the beginnings of God's story, we read about in, again in Revelation, the fullness of God's story revealed and God's full victory highlighted. Do you ever think about why God put this, this angelic being with the blazing sword in front of the tree of life? The tree of life. I mean, wasn't it there for the man and the woman so that they might live, having fallen into sin? And yet God guarded that by death with this, this angel with this flaming sword. Well, there is a way to the tree of life. And, and to eat of the tree of life in this world, if they had ate of it in the garden, would be to, to live forever but to live forever in a world that has fallen and to live forever in a world that is broken and probably to live forever with bodies that continue to break. And to do so would certainly been have been better than to have died, but it wouldn't be the most glorious. It wouldn't be the best thing that God had for his people. And so there is a way to the tree of life, but the way to the tree of life is through the broken body of Jesus Christ. It's through the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. It's through the Jesus who is now reigning at the right hand of God the Father. And we read that, and it was read for us earlier in Revelation chapter 22, that, that in the new heavens and the new earth, there is God on the throne, there is Jesus the Lamb, and there is a path to the tree of life, where God's people will eat of that tree of life constantly, and no eternal life, because it's a tree uh, that, that yields its fruit not once a year, but on a monthly basis. There's even more flourishing. There's even more hope. And so God's end game is full and complete restoration for all his people, for all of creation. Jesus is the hero we need, and he is the hero who gives us hope, the one who came to save us, to change our hearts so they are no longer rebellious, but they are bent toward loving our Creator, toward submitting to His good will, toward living again on every word that comes from our God. He's come to comfort us in our misery. He's come to show us the pathway to eternal life by trusting in Him. Trusting in his sacrifice, having given up his body. Yes, he gave up his body to death. He was crushed. But what he suffered is, is only a bruise on the heel compared to what Jesus' death did to the enemy. Turned the tables and defeated him. Jesus dealt Satan the ultimate blow, the decisive blow at the cross. He crushed him. And that gives us hope. That gives us hope. The first hints of Christmas give us hope. In the movie and the book, um, The Hunger Games, the epitome of evil, the snake, has got to be President Snow. And there's that scene where President Snow is communicating to some of his underlings how he, keeps, how he keeps the people 
basically enslaved and subjugated. And he says you can use hope. Hope is the only thing stronger than fear. A little hope, hope in measured amounts, is effective. But a lot of hope is dangerous. A spark is fine as long as it's contained. Friends, Genesis 3.15 gives us a spark of hope. A spark that, that is inflamed. A spark that, that creates a towering inferno as you go through the Bible. Genesis 3.15 shows us that Jesus is the source of hope for the world. That he is the hero who came to crush God's greatest enemy, Satan, and with him, sin and suffering. And so as we begin our celebrations, and as you begin to see the things that remind you that Christmas is on its way, a, a candle lit or a, a tree put up in your home or, or the songs on the radio or the cookies that you bake, whatever reminds you of Christmas this year, let it remind you that Jesus came to bring us hope, that he is the hero of God's story. He's the hero we need. He's the hero who gives hope to all people, all who look to him. I was reading about a particular uh, Christmas carol. At least I thought it was a Christmas carol. But I discovered upon a little bit of study that uh, the song that we sing at Christmas time and everybody thinks about Christmas when they sing it, uh, Joy to the World, was written by Isaac Watts, not about Christmas at all, not about the first coming or advent of Jesus. It was written uh, after reading Psalm 98 about the second coming of Jesus. When Jesus is going to come to judge all things and finally put right everything that went wrong in Genesis chapter 3. Listen to the words with that in mind. Listen to the words. The, the words. We'll be singing this in a couple of weeks and you'll think of Jesus' first coming, his first advent. But I want you to think about his second coming as you hear these words and think about how Jesus is the hero of God's story, the Savior who puts all things right. Joy to the world. The Lord is come again. Let earth, God's people, receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature, which is going to be restored, let it sing. Joy to the earth. The Savior reigns right now. Let men and women and children their songs employ. While fields and floods and rocks and hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. Genesis, or excuse me, Revelation, Romans chapter 8, the whole creation is groaning for the sons of God to be revealed. Heaven and nature are going to sing of our hero's return. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. That's what's going to happen when Jesus returns. He comes to make his blessing flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove, the peoples of the earth, the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. We remember that at Christmas. We look back to his coming and we look forward in great hope to his return. Amen. Let's pray.
Oh God, we, we thank you this morning that you saw us in our sin and misery. And you made a promise right there, just right at the moment of greatest desperation and despair. Lord, each of us knows what it's like to be in that place. To know that we're guilty and we have nowhere to hide and to feel the shame of what we've done or said or thought. And God, it's in that place that your grace flows so magnificently as it did that day in the garden when our foreparents fell and fell hard into sin. That as you were cursing the enemy, you made a promise for your people that you'd send a savior, a hero. He would be the perfect hero, tailor-made to save us, to renew us, to pay the penalty for our sin and yet rise again to new life to be our king, the one who leads us. To be our solid rock. Lord, might we stand in him. Give us the faith to trust in Jesus, to trust in his blood and his righteousness, even as we continue to remember his first coming look forward to his return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible.org.